0: Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Now, before I get started on the science portion of the night... I actually like to share a tidbit with you uh, that piqued my historical background. Um, And so I just found out today that the Pinkertons still exist, uh, though they're owned by a Swedish company now, and that Amazon hired them to monitor their workers. Now, if you don't know much about the Pinkertons, the company was started in the 1850s as a private detective agency and security firm. The founder, Alan Pinkerton, emigrated to the U.S. from Scotland in 1842. And uh, a couple years later, he began working at at the uh, Chicago Police Department and became their first detective. Soon after, though, he decided to go on his own, and he created the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Now, during the Civil War, the Pinkertons Sir uh, Pinkerton himself served as the head of the Union Intelligence Service, the forerunner to today's secret service and so the agency was actually known for foiling the plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln ahead of his first inauguration, and for other uh, acts of uh, spying and information gathering, including by the first female detective. They were also hired to deal with notorious outlaws such as Jesse James, Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch, and other gangs of Wild West criminals. The Pinkertons had a decidedly darker side, though. For instance, while hunting for Billy the Kid, they raided his family home, blew the arm off of his mother, and murdered his eight-year-old half-brother by mistake. He was nowhere near the place at the time. They were also responsible for much of the union busting in the late 1800s. They became notorious, notes Eric Loomis, a labor historian based at the University of Rhode Island. They would literally hire thugs off the street. There was a case in a town in Ohio where 25 Pinkertons were arrested for concealed weapons. For instance, they busted the Molly Maguires, a secret society of mainly Irish-American miners who were instrumental in a union for the mines of the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad. They were later involved in the infamous Homestead Steel Strike, where they were hired by Andrew Carnegie, one of the robber barons of the age, to break up a lockout and strike on July 1st, 1892 in Homestead, Pennsylvania. Three hundred Pinkertons were dispatched from Boston to breach the Union line by accessing accessing the steel mill from the river. Shots were exchanged between the Pinkertons and strikers with several people killed and wounded on both sides. Now, the strike went on for some time, and it was eventually quelled when the Carnegie backed Governor Pattinson sent in the Pennsylvania militia to break up the control. That the union had over the town by sending six thousand troops to surround the plant and the town itself, the result of the strike breaking led to defeat in the Court of public opinion, largely due the result of the strike breaking led didn't lead to the defeat of the in the court of public opinion, though sorry. Uh, it must be noted that this was due to an attempted assassination of Henry Clay Frick who was Carnegie's right-hand man and the mills executive officer by Alexander Berkman a New York anarchist and a lover of Emma Goldman who helped plan the attack this is one of those moments where i uh have to say that my anarchist brethren were not helping <laughs> um i think that you know they they had some pretty extreme ideas about things. And actually, this ended up backfiring um, because he didn't end up actually killing Frick for one thing. Uh, Frick went recovered from his wounds and uh, went on to continue to be um the right hand man of Carnegie. Uh, but again, the Pinkertons were not without sin. They became notorious for their work to protect the capitalist class by any means necessary with one columnist at the time explaining, No man of refined sensibilities would enter the ranks as a hired Hessian of plutocracy, expecting to shoot down his brothers at the command of capital. And they have largely survived into the 21st century through their ability to intimidate, surveil, and gather intelligence about workers. Now, of course, Amazon has denied hiring the Pinkertons to spy on their workers specifically, saying they were just there to, uh, do security for important, uh, shipments. However, their history makes that a hard line to swallow. Both the Amazon's and the Pinkertons. As documents obtained by Motherboard explicitly suggest, Amazon hired Pinkertons to closely monitor the labor and union organizing activities of its workers in Europe and later in Bessemer, Alabama. And that's actually where I first learned about this, because it turns out that Amazon was also trying to, and is currently trying to uh, put out commercials telling people in Bessemer, that unions are bad. Um, and it's actually funny because they tried to put the, um, ads on Twitch, which is, if you don't know, it's a well known streaming platform, uh, probably the most well known streaming platform. Uh, a lot of people do gaming, um, gaming streams there and, um, all sorts of other things too, though. Um, my husband actually has a podcast over there. Um, and where he talks about politics. I guess it's not technically a podcast. It's it's live streaming. Sorry, uh, I misspoke. And so um, it's really uh, funny because they are owned by Amazon. And so Amazon thought, oh, well, we'll just put our commercials on here. And they were actually alerted by someone who lives in Alabama who said, hey, this is against your, you know, regulations about what ads you are able to have on the platform because you say explicitly no political ads. And so they actually took the ads off of Twitch. Um, so great kudos to Twitch who said, you know, this absolutely is not something that we do. We do not, uh, allow advertisements for political, uh, anything. And so they actually took Amazon's commercials off of Twitch. Uh, We'll see if it continues, if if Amazon decides to uh, exert its muscle, um, but for the moment, uh, good on Twitch, definitely. And so The Guardian actually found through LinkedIn uh, research that former Pinkerton agents had gone on to be hired by Facebook, Google, and Apple. And so this is definitely still a proof. Pervasive issue wherein uh, the forces of capital continue to try and uh, intimidate and break up unions and uh, one of the worst things that ever happened in this country is the loss of political capital and social capital uh, by unions and um, that was not uh, that was absolutely by design and not through circumstance uh And so, yes, uh, it seems to be a really sad fact that the more things change, the more things stay the same. Those with the means will always try to suppress and control those below them, often by any means necessary. Remember, comrades, the only thing you have to lose is your chains. Okay, sorry, getting a bit carried away there. (laughs) Okay, let's move on now. Um I just that blew my mind um and I had to share it because I couldn't believe that the Pinkertons uh the the scourge of unions are still at it. Um I never thought to actually look until I saw that article and I was just blown away. Okay, let's start out tonight with our science news with some more talk about perseverance. Everything seems to be going well. We've already got back some exciting pictures, including a beautiful panorama and a picture of the right wheel of the rover featuring some exciting-looking rocks. Geologist Katherine Stack Morgan, Deputy Project Scientist for the Mars 2020 mission, is particularly excited about these rocks. She would like to know what these rocks even mean, because they are pockmarked and such and such holes can be formed in either volcanic or sedimentary rocks, and so she's excited to see just what they'll turn out to be. She's also excited that the landing site is near near lots of interesting geology in an area called Canyon de Chile by NASA, and this is after a national monument in uh, Navajo tribal lands. And so the rover has communicated with orbiters and relayed data through NASA's Deep Space Network the mission team is beginning to shift their schedule to the Martian Day, or SALS, which are 24 hours and 39.5 minutes long. Jessica Samuels, the surface mission manager for the Mars 2020 project, notes that they are going to be running initial checkouts and begin to cautiously work towards getting the rover ready for the beginning of the mission, which will probably not start until this summer. Um, and that's from Jennifer Trosper, deputy project manager at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Now, they do plan to, if all goes well, test out ingenuity uh, in the spring. And so the team was working uh, this past week to stabilize the rover's power and thermal systems and get its communication capabilities up and running, which obviously it did and so they are going to be sending it uh, upgraded software so that's going to be good and the remote sensing mast equipped with five of the 23 cameras aboard the rover was deployed this past saturday and again we're already receiving amazing color panoramas stitched together, uh, the one that they have was stitched together from 142 images taken by the robots Mastcam-Z, the dual high definition camera system with zoom capability. And so, um, it's quite similar to the one on Curiosity, except, uh, this one actually can zoom in. And so that's very cool. Um, because, Really, a big point of this mission is to get really clear, detailed, and good imagery of Mars. We're nestled right in a sweet spot where you can see different features similar in many ways to features found by Spirit, Opportunity, and Curiosity at their landing sites. Mascansi Principal Investigator Jim Bell of Arizona State University's School of Earth and Space Exploration said in a NASA statement. And the first videos have been released, including the highly anticipated uh, views of the landing. And we even have had some sound. And so one of one image on the deck of the rover shows another bit of festooning that I didn't realize about the other day, and so on one of the sort of uh, support um, bits of framework is a family picture of all of the various robots, done in little line drawings, um, and it's it's very adorable, um, <laughs> and so yeah, that is very cool. All of the all the rovers that uh, are on Mars, uh, whether or not they're still working, they're all on there. And so again, those cameras are very important, especially uh, for studying the geological makeup of the area, and of course, as part of the rover's main mission of looking for signs of ancient life. And so the rover even took a picture of the sky crane just after it crashed into the Martian surface at a safe distance from Percy. A moment of respect for the descent stage. Within two minutes of safely delivering me to the surface of Mars, I caught the smoke plume on one of my HAZCAMs, hazard avoidance cameras, from its intentional surface impact, an act that protected me and the scientific integrity of my landing site, Agency officials wrote via the mission's official Twitter account, at NASA Persevere. And in fact, the EDL, or Entry, Descent, and Landing System, captured around 30 gigabytes of data, including 23,000 images, as the rover flawlessly executed its descent to the surface of Mars. And, as noted above and last week, and as very much anticipated, we have sound. Now, it's just a tiny clip for the moment, and it's a bit hard to hear, but I am going to play it. And so what it is, is wind caught by the rovers, one of the rovers' cameras, on Saturday the 20th. Okay, so that may not sound terribly impressive, but it is the, one of the first sounds ever recorded on another planet and so this is actually the filtered version of the clip. Um, the sound of the rover itself has been stripped out um, and so you can actually go to NASA's Soundcloud and you can hear both this version and the version where you can hear the sort of whirring noises of uh, Percy in the background, but I just think it is so cool. And so yeah, pure Martian wind. And it was actually introduced in a press conference by David Kruhl, who we talked about last week of JPL. Um, And he just, it was delightful to see how blown away he was. Really neat overwhelming, if you will, uh, he said at the time while he was trying to gather his thoughts to move on. And again, I agree. It is pretty amazing. I know it's not, you know, uh, fireworks or something else, um, or, you know, something really, uh, um, spectacularly in, uh, different, but just to be able to hear wind on another planet is so amazing And I'm just so excited that we have this opportunity. And I'm sure we will get more noises uh, as we are able to continue to get data from the rover, and especially as it actually starts to move out and do its actual mission. And now, before we move on, I would just really like to explicitly note How nice it is to have a story full of quotes from female scientists. While there have been bumps in the road and it's still not perfect, NASA really has been a place where women can excel. And unfortunately, that's still a rare thing in science, um, especially in America. And so I just want to give them a shout out for having so many amazing women on the team. Um, And of course, that's a testament to these women as well. Um, who have become at the top of their game in order to be able to work on something like the Mars Perseverance rover, which is a very big deal. <laughs> okay. And so let's, let's get back to Earth now. And we are going to talk about a potential breakthrough in earthquake detection. Now, you may never think about the massive network of underground fiber. Companies fiber optics cables that connect the various continents and keep us transmitting data back and forth. You may have only heard of them when you hear stories like uh that sharks are trying to eat through them or something else silly. But one such cable connects Los Angeles to Valparaiso, Chile. And again, these are huge crazy things. If stretched end-to-end, this cable would equal four-fifths the Earth's diameter. And new research suggests that it could actually be instrumental in mitigating the worst impacts of earthquakes and tsunamis by giving people warning um, about ones that are especially offshore. An interdisciplinary study involving geophysicists and network engineers located disturbances in the polarization of light being transmitted through the cables. They've already applied for a patent for instrumentation related to the findings, in fact. There are scientific and societal implications here, said Zong-Wen Zhang Wen um, the lead author of the new paper and a geophysicist at the California Institute of Technology. Most of our geophysical sensors for detecting earthquakes and studying what the interior of the earth looks like are on land, but a lot of the most important geological processes are happening in the ocean. We're leveraging pre-existing cables in the ocean for a relatively scalable way of detecting earthquakes. We think in the future we can use these for earthquake and tsunami early warnings. And so because undersea cables are largely insulated from temperature fluctuations and human activity, which can disturb the light's polarization, disturbances caused by seismic or upswell waves are more easily detected. And so the team was actually able to detect the 7.1 magnitude earthquake that struck Oaxaca, Mexico last June. And so that was pretty impressive. And the team actually didn't set out to do this work, proving once again that often luck is a part of science. Uh, it was not expected at all, Jean said. No one had ever detected an earthquake by looking at a telecommunication signal itself. And so overall, they were able to detect the signs of 20 earthquakes and 30 ocean swells. Now, currently, the system cannot pinpoint the epicenter of an event, but Jean believes that they may be able to use triangulation in future to pinpoint it. William Wilcox, William Wilcox, a seismologist at the University of Washington who was not affiliated with the research, suggests that it could be a boon to monitoring the Cascadia subduction zone offshore, which is a worry to seism- seismologists, but has been problematic because conventional monitoring would cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And so to have this idea uh be able to be used in that area would be amazing because um, it would really cut down on the monetary uh requirements while also allowing for this monitoring to go forth. Now of course Unfortunately, all of this comes down to whether or not the telecommunications industry will want to co- cooperate with seismologists. Uh, but if we can actually make this happen, it could potentially save lives at what seems to be a very small cost. And, uh, so I would definitely, uh, like to see that happen in the future because I think that, um, you know, So many people are killed by earthquakes and tsunamis, and it's often very hard to detect when they're going to hit. And so anything that helps us uh, detect them beforehand so that we can start uh, to evacuate people, especially from shorelines, um, that is definitely something that we should look into. Okay, so not only are we learning more potentially about earthquakes... Researchers in New Zealand are looking to find out how volcanic rocks could impact, literally, roofs in Auckland, the country's largest city, which also happens to be uh, built in the middle of a huge field of volcanoes. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's it's in the uh, Auckland Volcano Group. <laughs> um, yeah. The thing is, is that none of them have uh, erupted in many hundreds of years. So I think people probably thought, oh, this is fine. They're just hills. Um Unfortunately, they're not just hills. <laughs> um, so among the ways in which a volcano can kill you, and trust me, there are lots, including pyroclastic flows, avalanches, lava flows, tsunamis, and changes to climate caused by aerosols, you can also be killed by semi-molten or newly cooled rocks being shot out of the volcano. So how do you simulate such a scenario? Well, the team created a cannon, loaded it with volcanic rocks, and shot them at a, real, a realistic replica of roofs to see what would happen. Volcanic bombs, which are still partially molten, and blocks, which are solid chunks, are a real menace. Kilauea's 2018 eruption sequence mostly involved lava flows, but occasionally let out some explosions of rocks. A volcanic basketball-sized bomb erupted out of the sea at one point, crashing through the roof of a tour bus and injuring over a dozen people. On land, another rock smashed through a man's shin, shattering the bones all the way down to his foot. And not only is the fact that many of these rocks are still molten and can cause serious burns scary, the worst part is that they can weigh as much as a refrigerator and can travel at up to 230 miles per hour. They can also travel some six miles from the volcano itself. That's astonishing. For something that goes from fist size to van size, said Rebecca Williams, a volcanologist at the University of Hull in England who wasn't involved with the research. Back in Auckland, home to 1.7 million people uh, and surrounded by 53 individual volcanic centers, (laughs) the most recent eruption was around 600 years ago, and it created the four-mile-long Rangitoto Island, which is basically a craggy volcanic island uh, that was created by that eruption. And while that might seem like a long time ago, there is a basically 100% probability that there will be another eruption sometime in the future. It's not just the normal uncertainty of what the eruption is going to be like, Nicole Allen, a PhD student at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, told Gizmodo. It's where it's going to be, and we just don't know. So the researchers launched DEBORA, the Determining Volcanic Risk in Auckland project, back in 2008. The interdisciplinary team from the University of Auckland and GNS Science, formerly the Institute of Geologic and Geological and Nuclear Sciences, including includes scientists, engineers, emergency managers, economists, social scientists, and others to better understand the threats to the city and beyond. And so they're looking at everything from how a volcanic eruption could affect the power grid to blocking sewers to how it can affect roofs. The work on volcanic ballistics is led by Tom Wilson, a disaster risk and resilience researcher at the University of Canterbury, along with Williams. They've been working on a ballistic cannon for a couple of years. We really wanted to make it bigger and better and do some more experiments with it, said Alan, although initially they had a very different experimental setup. It started as a trebuchet, actually, but it wasn't very accurate. <laughs> What they finally settled on was a pair of shipping containers with a hole cut in the floors and roofs, with roof material targets at the bottom. They then point a downward-facing cannon at the from the top. Blocks of volcanic rock from two to twenty pounds are then attached to a rod on a piston inside the cannon. When the ca- once the cannon is pressurized, they can pull a trigger, which then. Very quickly decompresses the cannon, and that forces the rock downward at over 100 miles an hour. And so they've already discovered some interesting and some worrying results, including the fact that just a moderate dusting of ash can cause some grooves to buckle or even collapse, because ash is actually pretty dense. It's about, I think, six times the density of water. And so even though there's not that much of it, it's very dense. And interestingly, though, they also found that if you've got an eruption that's going to pump out some ballistics, some volcanic bombs, you actually want a layer of ash, said Williams. It acts like a cushion on the roof, which is really cool. And that's completely counterintuitive. So basically, there's a sweet spot for ash. And so this isn't a fully functioning model of the reality of roof types in the city, but actually creating a realistic simulation would, that would actually hinder the research because it would introduce too many variables. So this is kind of how researchers do it. They create a model and they do uh, testing on that. But just this bit of knowledge can help authorities and emergency managers have a better idea of what kind of damage they could expect and can help them design better roofs in the future. And of course, who doesn't want a career firing rocks at roof materials to see what will happen? I think that sounds like a pretty fantastic job. Um, and, uh, definitely, uh, a pro for becoming involved in uh, volcano research. Of course, there's lots of cons as well, since many volcanologists have unfortunately lost their lives to their work. Um, so definitely pros and cons. <laughs> okay, we are going to take a break and do some PSAs and some show promos. And then when we come back, we're going to switch gears and we're going to talk about a rare uh, element So do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are once again listening to evidence-based radio. And so, again, we're going to shift to chemistry for a moment. Recently, researchers got a chance to study a microscopic bit of Einsteinium-254, an element first created by the combustion of a hydrogen bomb on the South Pacific island of Lab. Uh, in nineteen fifty two it's an element that is not found in nature uh, It's very fast and, and in fact is very fast decaying, making it hard to study but a team of chemists at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, Los Alamos National Laboratory, and Georgetown University had the opportunity recently to study a sample produced by the Oak Ridge National Laboratory's high flux isotope reactor. And so it turns out it's a byproduct, was a byproduct of the biannual production of Californium 252, another heavy lab synthesized element, this time with commercial values. That's why they make it twice a year. The reactor at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, is one of the few labs producing Californium 252. The reason that they can create these elements is because they have this really high flux of neutrons, so they can just kind of push further and further and further out of their nucleon shells, said Catherine Shield, a chemist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and co-author of the paper. The initial product of the reactor is just an absolute mess, a combination of all sorts of things, Shield said, explaining that it's not just about making the element or making the isotope but also purifying it so that we can do chemistry with it. And so these elements are part of the actinide group. uh, And those are the elements usually found at the bottom of a periodic table uh, with weights, with atomic weights between 89 and 103. Uh, Few of these are are actually synthesized. So we know that they exist and, you know, they were maybe created once, but we don't create them on a regular basis though some of them, like uranium and plutonium, are actually naturally occurring. Um, And just uh, just as an aside, there's no real reason why they're put at the bottom of the periodic table like that. It's mostly just aesthetic, so there's nothing particularly different or special about them in the table. It's just the way that the table has traditionally been produced. Now, um... The team decided to work with these sorts, I'm sorry, working with these sorts of radioactive materials obviously requires some serious safety protocols. The team worked with a tiny sample of just 200 nanograms. This is around 300 times lighter than than a grain of salt. Corey Carter, a, a chemist now at the University of Iowa and lead author of the study, notes that the previous lower limit for a sample was a microgram, or a thousand nanograms. There were questions of, is this sample going to survive, that we could prepare for as best we possibly could, Carter said in a video call with Gizmodo. Amazingly, amazingly it worked. The team were able to measure the bond distance of the sample using X-ray absorption spectroscopy a process which involves bombarding the sample with x-rays. It actually requires a special setup, which will withstand bombardment by x-rays for around three days straight. They found that light emitted from the samples was blue-shifted, with the wavelengths being slightly shortened. This is actually a surprise, because other elements near Einsteinium on the periodic table cause a redshift. The team would have performed x-ray diffraction to further examine this and see if the electrons coupled differently than their neighboring elements, but there was a bit of Californium still attached to the sample, and this would have confused those results. So these results suggest that extrapolating from the features of other elements might not work in the way it was previously assumed. There's been a lot of great work over the last 20 years up 20 years up, moving progressively farther into the actinide series, showing that actinide chemistry has more going on, Carter said. The rules that we've kind of developed for smaller things, maybe they don't work quite as well. While radio analytical work was done on the element shortly after it was discovered, the actinides in general have basically been known for their radioactive properties and not a whole lot else. This recent research suggests the bond distance or average length of the connections between two nuclei of two atoms in a molecule is actually a little shorter than expected. Carter said it is a meaningful first data point. Unfortunately, uh, at some point in their research, COVID-19 struck, and so by the time the researchers were able to return to the lab, most of the sample had decayed. But it is a important first step, and will most likely lead to new and exciting research in the near future. And speaking of exciting things leading us into the future, Elizabeth Ann is the first clone of a black-footed ferret and the first endangered species to be cloned in the United States. It's an exciting breakthrough in the race to improve the genetic diversity of this threatened animal. Born on December 10th, 2020, Elizabeth Ann is the genetic twin of a ferret named Willa, who died in 1988. Willa's cells were preserved by the Wyoming Game and Fish Department at the San Diego Zoo Zoo Global's Frozen Zoo. The Frozen Zoo was created more than 40 years ago with the hope that it would provide solutions to future conservation challenges, Oliver Bider, Director of Conservation Genetics at San Diego Zoo Global, said in a statement. We are delighted that we have been able to cryobank and, years later, provide viable cell cultures for this groundbreaking project. And so, today's black-footed ferrets are descended from just seven animals which is very bad in terms of their ability to fight off potential biological threats the species was listed in as endangered in, on march 11th 1967 and they actually thought it was extinct at some point had gone extinct at some point until in 1981 a rancher in wyoming found a group of the adorable animals on his land which were then used to create a captive breeding program and shout out to that rancher, uh, definitely, that he didn't just get rid of them um, and actually was very uh conscientious. And so conservationists have been able to reintroduce populations to several areas across the country. A 2008 report from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Survey of a five-year surveillance study found that... The species remains one of the most endangered mammals in the United States and continues to warrant endangered status. Adding that extinction is not guaranteed, as the recovery of the species is within reach. And so, in 2018, a permit was issued to attempt to clone the species. Elizabeth Ann is the result of that project. Although this research is pre- Preliminary, it is the first cloning of a native endangered species in North America, and it provides a promising tool for continued efforts to conserve the black-footed ferret, said Noreen Walsh, director of the service's Mountain Prairie Region in a USFWS statement. And so they also partnered with Revive and Restore, a conservation group, Viagen Pets and Equine, which is a cloning company, and the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Now, the hope is, again, to increase the genetic diversity of the animals, as such low diversity can lead to increased susceptibility to disease and genetic disorders, diminished ability to adapt in the wild, and lower fertility rates. Now, luckily, Willow was not related to the Wyoming ferrets found in the 1980s, and her genome was found to have an abundance of genetic differences from this living population. If Elizabeth Ann is able to mate and reproduce, this will be a small but encouraging step toward diversifying the population. So Elizabeth Ann and her mother, her surrogate mother, are living at the USFWS's National Black-Footed Ferret Conservation Center in Colorado, which is where they will live out their lives. Now, part of the challenge for the ferrets is not only due to the fact that they have low genetic diversity, But also, the places where they can successfully live are rare in the wild these days. Successful genetic cloning does not diminish the importance of addressing habitat based threats to the species or the services focus on addressing habitat conservation and management recovery and management to recover black footed ferrets, said Walsh. And so if you are interested in more of Elizabeth Ann, she actually has her own Flickr album. Um, there aren't too many pictures there, but the pictures they have are incredibly adorable. Uh, Elizabeth Ann is just heartbreakingly cute. Uh, as long as you like ferrets and other small rodents. Um, you know, some people just don't like that class of animal. Um, but if you do, she's very cute. <laughs> okay. So let us move from uh, slightly old and renewed DNA to some ancient DNA. And so, an international team of scientists have now sequenced the DNA from three ancient molars of mammoths, one likely to be over a million years old. And this has revealed that there is a ghost lineage that interbred with distant relatives to produce the North American mammoth population and so like humans mammoths began in africa and then spread over much of the planet however they started the journey a lot earlier than humans and so had more time to speciate they first branched off from elephants and then split into two species the southern and steppe species later adapting to the ice age climate the woolly mammoth and its close relative the north american mammoth or columbian mammoth evolved Sadly, all of these species are obviously now extinct, with the exception of those uh, original elephants. And so we have DNA from both the woolly and Colombian mammoths, and these genomes reveal a number of adaptations to cold climates, with a bit of interbreeding as woolly mammoths moved into North America and contributed around 10% to the genome of the Colombian population. The new research comes from teeth preserved in Siberia, where the conditions have led to many Ice Age mammals having been preserved, uh, some in shockingly good condition. Uh, but here, these teeth are very old and there's nothing else left um, from the animal, which is very, very common in fossils. Uh, the teeth are much more durable than any other part of the animal. And so the teeth were discovered by the late Russian scientist Andrei Cher in the 1970s. And they come from the start of the last ice age when woolly mammoths should have been in the area. The teeth are too old for carbon dating, but the dates have been inferred from a combination of reference fossils and known flips in the orientation of the Earth's magnetic field. The shape of the teeth also provides information about what species they belong to, and thus we can infer that one tooth is a half a million years old, another about a million years old, and the third even older. And so they then went on to uh, date them using recovered mitochondrial DNA. And so they were able to recover the mitochondrial DNA from each of the three teeth, as well as some of the nuclear genome for the uh, younger ones. So between 2 and 10%, which doesn't sound great, but still represents a significant bind. And so using the mitochondrial geno- genome and uh, the mitochondrial clock, the teeth, named after rivers where they were found, were dated at 1.6 million for the Kristovka uh, tooth, 1.3 million for the Adicha tooth and 900,000 years ago for the Chekoichka tooth. And so the nuclear DNA suggests dates of 1.3 million and 600,000 years ago for the Adicha and um, Chukhoichka. And so all had fragmented bits of elephant DNA in their genome, which is um, not surprising, but it was very fragmented, which was interesting. And so obviously all of these dates are guesstimates, but the two older teeth are firmly within the oldest ever obtained for animals. And it suggests that they were in Siberia shortly after the ice age began, before there was a clear woolly mammoth lineage and before mammoths appeared in North America. The two younger samples are clearly on the same lineage as the one which eventually led to woolly mammoths. But the oldest, um, from Krestovka, seems to be completely different. It's related to the woolly mammoth branch, but clearly diverged from it at least 1.8 million years ago. The Krestovka animal didn't have any direct modern ancestors, which suggests it died off as a distinct population but before that, it contributed a significant portion, portion of its DNA to the Columbian mammoth genome. This suggests that the Kristofka animal was a hybrid, and that its lineage interbred with the ancestors of the woolly mammoths to produce a lineage with a 50-50 mix of the two branches' DNA, which then migrated into North America and became the Colombian species. Only later did the Colombian species and the woolly mammoth rediscover each other in North America. The researchers found that the DNA already contained most of the adaptations of to the cold as their descendants. They found 5,600 cases where the proteins of the mammoth genes varied from elephants, with 85% of the changes of later woolly mammoths, including genes for hair growth, fat deposition, temperature scenting, sensing, and the handling of day-night cycles. What we show now is that the Adicha mammoth seemed to have had nearly all of the Arctic adaptations that the woolly mammoths had. It had genes related to bat deposition, thermoregulation, thermal sensation, and circadian ribbons. Love Dahlen, professor of evolutionary genetics at the Swedish Museum of Natural History, research leader at the Center for Paleogenetics, and study co-author explained. So that means two things. First, we have to rethink what the steppe mammoths look like. They probably were much more cold adapted and woolly, but it also means that the origin of the woolly mammoth is not associated with this rapid burst of evolution. Instead, for all we can see, the thing that changes is the teeth. Adrian Lister, a paleobiologist at, the, at London's Natural History Museum and co-author, was one was the one who actually insisted the team use these molars, uh, having been a good friend with Cher. The findings represent a large shift in the understanding of how the Columbia mammoth evolved and is important for the greater research in mammals, as we're still learning a lot about these sort of um, hybridization events. To me, this is the most interesting thing, Lister said of genetic research, because we can start to find out more about the animal as a living creature. As paleontologists, I hate saying the word never in science, but I will say it. We could never have known that from the bones. That kind of thing is wonderful. And so, yeah, that is very cool. And I think that it's very interesting that they were able to find out that all of this information from single teeth. And so that is a big thing, like I said, in uh, a lot of uh, paleontology and um, anthropology is that we have a lot of teeth in the fossil record. And some of those teeth aren't connected to anything else. And, um, despite that, we can learn a fair amount about the animal from just those teeth. And so, obviously, the other thing I need to say is that we, in no way, shape, or form, should consider this a, um, stepping stone to actually cloning a, uh, woolly mammoth. And I'm not even sure that we should really do that, frankly. Um, something like, uh, black-whitted ferrets where they're still existing and we can save them. That's one thing, but bringing back animals from thousands of years ago, uh, not such a good thing in my book. I am pretty sure that that's probably not what we should be doing. Um, And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about this over the years with people talking about how, oh, you know, we could bring back megafauna to the American uh, grasslands and that would help uh, restore the land and the balance. But I really think that that's not the greatest idea in the world um, because we've already messed up the ecosystem of our world so much. And I think that we could mess it up even more by these theoretically helpful thoughts of bringing animals back to where they used to be. But we have no idea what that would lead to. We have no idea how these animals would be able to adapt because again, they've been extinct for, you know, thousands of years, in many cases, many more years, um, you know, definitely don't expect, uh, dinosaurs, for instance, uh, Someone in one of the articles made the reference to Jurassic Park and uh, we're not going to get dinosaur DNA um, that would be viable to make a clone. Um, And so no dinosaurs. But I think, again, that's a good thing because dinosaurs don't belong on the modern Earth. Um, I would love to meet a dinosaur. I would love to get to hang out with an Ankylosaurus, my favorite kind of dinosaur. That would be awesome. It would also be really, really terrible (laughs) as much as it would be awesome because that animal wouldn't belong here. It wouldn't necessarily be adapted to eating any of the plants that would be available here on the earth currently to eat. And so, um, you know, it's just, it would not have any, probably wouldn't have any ability to fight off the germs that are here. Uh, in modern times, because its genetic makeup was not developed to deal with those germs. And so, um, you know, there's a whole host of reasons why it's a terrible idea. Um, and so even though we still have elephants, that doesn't mean that we can then use elephants to create willy mammoths. It just doesn't work that way. Um, as, you know, uh, Buzz killing as that is, I think that it's really important that we focus on saving the animals that are still extant on the earth. Um, and I think that cloning can really help with that, as we can see with Elizabeth Ann. Um, that's a really good way to think about cloning, um, is to bring back animals that are still extant, that still potentially could be saved in their natural habitats and to protect those natural habitats. Um, and I think we need to do more about that. Um, and so, yeah. And of course, I also think we need to do more to save humans in their natural habitats. But that's a whole nother podcast <laughs> or radio show, I should say. Sorry. <laughs> um and so yeah all right that's all the time we have for tonight please uh stay safe out there uh definitely remember that we are still in the throes of covid and so keep your masks on get a vaccine as soon as you can and be well Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.